children, my daughter said, is it time to go yet? It's time to go. Which was a beautiful, uh, beautiful segue this morning for us. That's good. I was reminded, actually, uh, it is funny that she would say that because um, preparing for the sermon, I was thinking about it being summertime and long car trips. And um, I don't know, we've been spending a lot of time in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, I found myself asking that question a lot. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You think about, um, we were talking about some parents, you know, how, how a four-hour car trip with a kid who is impatient can be unbearable, right? He's like, come on! We went out to watch the fireworks with uh, the family, and uh, of course what happened was right whenever the fireworks started, Olivia had to go to the bathroom. And of course there's no bathroom anywhere. So then we face this moral dilemma that she, does she go in the grass with like 3,000 people around us? Uh, no. And, but you know, it's so funny how this all of a sudden becomes this unbearable journey, this thing where she's, you know, I have to go, I have to go, I have to go. It's like that, are we there yet? It's like that thing. And it just changes everything. The environment changes. And I just wonder, as we've journeyed with Nehemiah, this is the last week of Nehemiah. This is the last week of Nehemiah. And um, as we journey with Nehemiah, uh, it seems like in some ways it's been such a long trip. It, it, it's been such a long journey with Nehemiah. Um, and I just want to just back up one week, because we don't have time to back up to the beginning. Back up one week, though, but look at that rubble. Remember where we started with Nehemiah, when the wall was down? And, uh, but one week, I, I very much sensed that we journeyed through this text together, that this wall around Jerusalem was symbolic representative of the wall we find ourselves surrounded in in Christ Jesus. And, and I'll, I'll just say that's a leap I've made through the study. Uh, but I, I certainly sense that in the text and I sense that in my own walk, that there's this time in your life where you can't take anymore, where you're completely destroyed, you're completely desolated. And in that time, in that place in your life, Jesus Christ comes to you right where you are. And like Nehemiah came to the people of Jerusalem, he comes right where you are in all the squalor and all the brokenness and all the hopelessness, and he surrounds you. And for the first time in your life, you might experience peace. For the first time, you might be able to breathe. And that's what we've been talking about with this wall. For the first time, the people of God remembered that they're people of God because we so easily forget. We so easily forget. We forget Jesus. We forget what he did on the cross. We forget that we're called to be followers, to be disciples of his. And that's what happened last week in the text. Because once this wall was up, and that's our sense of when Jesus comes into our life, once this wall is up around the people of Jerusalem, they can no longer be who they were. It's not possible. Everything changed for the people in Jerusalem. And the same thing happens when we follow Jesus. I've heard it said that Jesus meets you right where you are, but he loves you far too much to leave you there. And I think that the reason I bring this up and maybe the reason I spend so much time kind of uh, setting it up or thinking about it or it's because I feel like in the church so many times we get hung up on this time of accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord. Absolutely critical. You cannot know peace with God without Jesus Christ. It's not possible. 
And the church spends a lot of time and energy getting people to the point of decision. I've been to big rallies where bands play and we sing songs and they have a huge altar call and just thousands and thousands of people pour out of the aisles and man, that's so awesome to see. But then we go to worship the next morning and we set and it's like we're stuck. It's like in some ways we're dead to the world. And that's because we haven't entered maybe into the second part of the journey. Now, I'm not saying all of us, because some of us are trying to enter into this journey of discipleship with Jesus Christ. But that's what happens when he comes into your life. He loves you far too much to leave you where he's found you. It's not where you belong, because you are a child of God. And this is where we find the people of Jerusalem. So last week, we talked about that idea, this long trip with Jesus. But then this week, I want to talk about this kind of really cool thing that happens at the very end of of, uh, Nehemiah. And we're going to look at the 13th chapter of Nehemiah. But before we look at the text, I want to do something real quick here. Let's look at the text first. This is Nehemiah 13.6. If you can turn there, if you can pull that up for me, the the page number, I think it's like 348. Ah, so close. 346. All right, um, and that's what we're going to look at. And this is what it says. It says, But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year, Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And that was something that's critical. I underline that because you'll recall when Nehemiah first went to Jerusalem, he asked the king, and the king said, When will you come back? And he said, I'll, I'll return to you. And I read this book the first time. I'll, I'll confess this. And I thought Nehemiah never went back to the king. And there was part of my spirit, part of my rebellious spirit that loved that. I'm like, yeah, he got there and set up shop and was like, see, God's on my side. But that's not what Nehemiah did. Because like his whole journey to this uh, building of the wall, he's a person of integrity, Nehemiah is. He is a person of his word. And it says here, in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, he returned to the king just like he said he would. And sometime later, I asked for permission to come back to Jerusalem and here I learned about evil things that Elisheb did, had done. But before we get to that stuff, the return visit, I want to do a quick discipleship math here with you. Because I was amazed. I started thinking, now wait a minute, the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, and then we started in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, and we'd already heard Nehemiah say, 12 years I was in Jerusalem. Okay. But how long did it take him to do the wall? 52 days. So let's do some math. Now, this requires a Hebrew calendar, but I looked at it. Okay, here we go. So tw- there's this weird thing with the Hebrew calendar where it doesn't really match the, the, the solar cycles. So they had to do this thing called leap months. Okay, so we're going to do some math. 12 years times 7 months times 30 days plus 12 years times 5 months time. It's not going to fit. Let's start over. Next one. Next slide. Go forward. There we go. 12 years. Who likes math? I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you see how small a number that was? <laughs> I like math, too. So that's why I was apologizing to the rest of you. Okay. 12 years times 7 months times 30 days plus 12 years times 5 months times 29 days. There's the number of days in the month, number of months in the year by the number of years he was there. See what's going on there? Plus, now we have this weird leap month thing. Four years with a leap month of 29 days. 4,000. 376 days of discipleship. We spent all this time talking about this wall they built in 52 days. And he spent 4,376 days there total discipling. I would include the wall building in the discipling time. I would include the journeying time in the discipling time. But isn't it amazing how much 
time Nehemiah spent living with the people of Jerusalem. And then, so it's cool to get caught up in it, but look how much time, look at this, 85.8 times longer than the time spent building the wall. And it wraps up in like, what, three or four chapters at the end of the book. And I think that we do the same thing in our Christian walk all too often. We make this decision for Christ, and then we think, are we there yet? Are we ever going to get there? How long is this going to take? Didn't I make my decision for you, Lord? Didn't I profess you to be my Savior? And Jesus says, yes, but I'm not done with you yet. And the same thing happens with the people of Jerusalem and Nehemiah. And so I just thought that was amazing, 85.8 times longer. So if you feel like you've been following Jesus for a long time and he maybe keeps asking you to change and do little things to, to be renewed day by day, you're in good company. It's an act of love. Let's pray together today. Father God, we thank you for uh, the time that we get to spend just reflecting in your word. I, I, I confess, Lord, the impatience in my life. I confess, Lord, that, that sometimes we, we, we get impatient with you as if you're on our time schedule, as if um, you have to make time for us. Lord, I pray today that we have this sanctuary, a uh, sanctuary of space and a sanctuary of time. Pray that your spirit would move mightily among us, that we would hear from the ever-living God, the one who is always speaking. And uh, I just pray, Lord, today that you might renew our minds you might open our hard hearts. She might unplug our stopped up ears. That we would hear the truth of your word. And again, celebrate our discipleship. We love you and thank you. We know the prayers are answered. And we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to read on now in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 6. But I want to do that math. I wanted to see how long Nehemiah had spent with the people of Jerusalem before he left. Now, everything we read today is going to be after he returned. But that was all before he even left Jerusalem. He spent all that time loving and living with these people. And this is what it says. I'm going to start with verse 6. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, because in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Now here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. And I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. And I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service of the house of the Lord had gone back to their own fields. And so I want to roll through here because this, I feel like this is discipleship 2.0. You know, Nehemiah spent 12 years discipling the people of Jerusalem and walking with them day by day and transforming their life day by day and shaping them and molding them and expecting that God was going to renew these folks who he'd been living with. And he leaves, and when he comes back, he's distressed by what he finds. Nehemiah returns, and he finds this first thing. There's four things he finds on his return to Jerusalem, and I think they're instructive to our own lives as Christians. He finds that the children of God were allowing an enemy of God to dwell in a space that's reserved for God. Okay? That's like a lot. But he, he found Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah? We talked about Tobiah a lot and Sambalat. These guys are all going to come up again in this last chapter when Nehemiah returns. 
But the children of God, those chosen of God, those who God had redeemed, who God had placed in this protective place, had invited the enemy into the house of the Lord, into a space, let's read it again, reserved for the Lord. He said they had provided Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. And he was greatly displeased. And I want to ask, look, look how do we do this in our life today? How, how does that look in our life today? Because you might say, well, we don't even have a house of the Lord. You know, we worship here. We don't have somebody holed up in a room. We, we can't even have people live in our offices. We already checked. Uh, they won't let Dan Shanks live there. <laughs> we were trying. Um, but we don't have anybody living. But there's this idea that we have these, these, these dark little corners of our lives, these little spots that we've forgotten. Well, not really, Right? because we talk about them, we know where they are. But these little places of darkness that we, we want the enemy to just, 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 Lord, just, just, it's okay. I, I like that spot. Don't, don't go in that room. That, that's okay. We got a relationship, him and I. And we do this with our lives, and we are called to be renewed day by day in Jesus Christ, but we have these dark spots, we have these little places in our hearts and our souls and our lives and how we choose to live our life that we will not allow God to come in and claim his place. But here's the problem, brothers and sisters. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that you are. All of you is his. You have no right to the room. If you are having something or someone dwell in a place in your soul that belongs to God, you are uh, squatting on God's territory. And I want to look at Nehemiah's solution in verse 8. He was greatly displeased, and he threw out all of Tobiah's household goods. He threw them out. And that's just such a wonderful thing. But I want to make the point here that we're not in that dark room fighting the enemy for that space. Jesus Christ has claimed it. And the person clearing the rooms in our lives is not ourselves of our own power, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's acknowledge that today. If you're uncomfortable losing those places, talk to Jesus. He wants them back. The second thing he, he realizes here in verse 11, I'm going to go back to verse 10 and just read through this. It says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that the Levites and singers had re responsible for the service of the house of the Lord had gone back to their own fields. So this is the second problem he sees. And the, this is the way Nehemiah sums it up when he's talking to the uh, nobles. He says, why is the house of God neglected? That's his question. Now, you'll recall just last week, they took an oath to never forget the house of the Lord, to never neglect the house of the Lord. And here Nehemiah returns, and we don't know how long he was gone. There's an assumption it was at least a year or a few years he was gone. But you would not expect when you return to find this type of living going on. The Levites and singers gone from the house of the Lord. No more praise being offered to God. The God who had restored the wall of Jerusalem. See, this is all about territory that belongs to God. And he says, why is the house of God neglected? And he called them together and he stationed them all at their posts. And then in verse 12, let's read this right quick. It says, all Judah brought the tithes of grain. Look what starts happening. The new wine and oil into the storerooms. And I put Shemaiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hena, son of Zakur, the son of Methaniah, their assistant, because these men were considered to be trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. 
The second thing that he realized on returning to Jerusalem is that the children of God, despite their promises, were neglecting the house of the Lord. And all the Levites and singers had to go home. Now, you might just think, well, those guys just packed up camp and went home. That's probably not the case. There's a little thing called you got to eat, right? And if folks are neglecting the house of the Lord, you can't eat. And this is what happens when they return to their fields. They're going back because they have to eat, and they're not being provided for in God's house any longer. And I want you to notice in the solution, he, he says, I had him bring, in verse 12, all Judah brought tithes of grains, new wine, and oil to the storerooms. Like he put people back in posts, back around those places. But I want to go back right quick to verse 4 and 5. We'll start in 5, like 4b. It says, and he was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him, this is Elishib, a room with a large room that was formerly used, Nehemiah finds this out after he gets there, to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed by the Levites, prescribed for the Levites, and new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, as well as the contributions of the priests. Do you see what happened? Tobiah was in the way of God's house. It wasn't just that he had this dark corner in the room that, that he said, this is, you know, this is okay. He was actually blocking the blessings of Israel from coming into the house of the Lord. And this is a big deal. And Nehemiah makes this space in the room. He clears it out because he had to make room for the faithfulness of the Israelites and the blessings of God. And I hope that you can hear that in some way today, that those same things are true for our life. Those places that we think that we like, we like it, Lord. We don't want you to mess with that part of our life. It's the part of the most blessing if you would let him have it. But we can't. Someone said to me this week, at some point in your life, you become defined by your illness. I think that's a big problem with a sinner who can't admit that they're a sinner. Is that they become defined by who they are. Maybe I become defined by my rebellious attitude instead of an attitude of service or humility. But you become defined by your illness, and you forget that health is an option. Thank God for Jesus Christ, who's always reminding us that we're called to be whole. So and give over these places in our lives, these dark places, and we can know that God is waiting to fill his storehouse again. Let's read on together. I, I'm going to read this right here, too, because Nehemiah, I love the way he says this stuff. They put these guys in charge responsible. He did that before, though, right? So I'm not feeling very optimistic, but, you know, God help us. But he says this, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. And we talked about that before, how Nehemiah says these things. He says that four times in this last chapter. Four times he says, remember, 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 and he's talking to God about things he's done. And we talked about that before, but it bears repeating that it might sound like he's trying to get a reward, but look at what he's saying. Remember me and don't blot out what I've so faithfully done for your house. It's an act of submission to the Lord. He never, acts, he never wants anything that I can hear in there. 
In 15 it says, In those days I saw men in Judah tra treading wine presses on a Sabbath and bringing in grain offerings and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and other kinds of loads. And they were bringing into all Jerusalem on the Sabbath. They are bringing this all into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And therefore I warned them, Nehemiah did, against selling food on the Sabbath. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath of the people of Judah. To the people of Judah. And I rebuked the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What is this wicked thing you were doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things, so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? What? 18. Didn't your forefathers do the same things, so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? See, Nehemiah never forgets the big picture. Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. The third thing that he realizes when he returns to the holy people of Israel, the people of God, is that they are not keeping the Sabbath. And we itch with this, right, Christians? Because we go, man, that's the, you know, that's, that's the old, that's the law. That's, you know, take a day off. Oh, what's, you know, what's that about? We don't, that doesn't apply, Right? I don't got to take a break, do I? Nehemiah seems to think so. And he rebukes them. And look at what he says in verse 17. This is his quote. What is this wicked thing you're doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Desecrating the Sabbath. And I, I did think about that. I thought, what, what, what does that mean, desecrating the Sabbath day? It's this idea of coming, of, of taking something that's good and pure and right and holy and ruining it, using it inappropriately. It's a gift of God, the Sabbath is. But they're ruining the gift. Once again, they were becoming slaves to the culture around them. I want you to remember when Nehemiah showed up, what did they have? Nothing. What options did they have? None. They couldn't stop the enemy from coming and going. They couldn't stop the mockers. They couldn't stop nothing. They couldn't even get off their rear ends anymore to do anything about it, right? And here they've been given this day of Sabbath rest. By the way, someone asked me when we were doing those series, I said, 52 weeks, does that include Sabbath rest? And I'm thinking with Nehemiah, it probably did. <laughs> this man was, uh, in, in, had integrity, integrity to boot. But they were once again becoming slaves to the world's culture. The people around them, those who were living around the wall of Jerusalem, were imposing their desires on the people of God. And look at what he does for the solution here. He says, When evening shadows fell, in verse 19, on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath day, I, that's when the evening started before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I'm going to read on a minute. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside the walls of Jerusalem. But I warned them, and I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. I'm not sure what kind of threat that is from Nehemiah. Uh, from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. You see this wall that they've been building? 
This wall they forgot they, even, they could even use. We talked about why were there gates in the wall, you know? There were gates in the wall because you've got to be able to come and go. We're not building a fortress that's impenetrable here, but we're building some boundaries around our lives. And we wait, and we know that there's times we can open those gates and say, come on in. But not on the Sabbath. It's the Lord's day. And I want you to notice here that this wall they built didn't just require Sabbath then for the Israelites in Jerusalem. It required the Sabbath to be um, seen by all of Judah around. Everyone. They stopped coming on the Sabbath. Life had changed. Sometimes if you go on vacation, we talked about vacations earlier, and you go to the south, there are still areas of the south when you drive through on a Sunday and you can't get gas. And you can't eat. Which is bad if you're on the road with four kids, you know. Everybody's hungry. But there's this thing that you have to observe the Sabbath. And this is what they were doing, desecrating the Sabbath day. I want to spend just a minute talking about what Sabbath, what is Sabbath? What's the problem with Sabbath? Like, who cares if we work seven days a week, Lord? You know, you've given us all the days to work. Well, one problem is that God rested. And we do this thing where we always confuse ourselves with God and God with ourselves. And we see God through our own eyes, and we, we think we see us through God's eyes. The trouble is we don't. And that's why we follow commandments. But there's this thing that we're saying when we don't observe a Sabbath day, and we're not going to talk about some kind of a self-righteous uh, Sabbath of like, this is my day. But I want to encourage you to take that time in your life, to make that sanctuary in your life, to say, it's okay. And I'll tell you one of the greatest lessons you'll learn from a Sabbath day rest. The greatest lessons you will learn from a Sabbath day rest is this. You're not all that important. You're not all that important. If you took a break, the world would be just fine. We don't like to believe that, though. We like to be, oh, Lord, if I didn't show up at work, man, oh, man, the whole place would fall apart. Oh, if I wasn't there for, this is my favorite one. I'm going to tell a little story. <laughs> Sorry. If I wasn't there with my family, oh, they wouldn't. They would starve to death. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't do laundry. They would, oh, it would be a disaster if I took a day off. Try it. You know, it's pretty amazing what you'll do when you're hungry. It's pretty amazing what you'll do whenever you got to have clothes to wear. There's this idea that we find ourselves being far too self-important. And when we take a Sabbath day of rest, we remember, that's right, God. You're God, and I'm not. You're, you're in charge of things, and I'm just hanging out, enjoying the ride. And then all of a sudden, those six days, you can be like, woohoo, man, this is so cool, because you know Sabbath is coming, and you know the whole six days, not just the seventh, God's in charge of your life. God's in charge. You can take peace and comfort in celebrating the Sabbath. So I'd encourage that. And then also the Sabbath from our devices. We talk about that. You know, just turn off your email. One time somebody said to me, you didn't check email for two days? I'm like, no. Imagine that. No email for two days. Taking a Sabbath rest is important. I want you to see one other thing in this verse right here. It's in verse 18. And this is Nehemiah, what he says. When he says, your fathers are the same things that God brought the calamity upon us, God will get your attention in life. And the story of the Israelites and the story of Jerusalem, the story of the wall that Nehemiah rebuilt was that God tore it down. God tore it down. He wants to make sure we're paying attention. God won't leave us alone, but look at the second part of that verse. Nehemiah indicts them in this way. He says, you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. 
And my question to you is, is there some way in your life that you're stirring up the wrath of God? We don't talk about that much anymore, do we? We talk about sin sometimes, but then we quickly say, Jesus paid and Jesus paid. But is there some way in your life that you're living your life and you are stirring up the very wrath of a righteous God and then you have the audacity to say, oh God, what are you doing to me? Stirring up wrath. Nehemiah has seen it. Sometimes we get glimpses of it in our own life and God teaches us in that moment. We say, oh, sorry, Lord not living the way he wants us to live. Just ask that question. That's what I'd, I'd encourage you to do. Is there some way when you're struggling that you're stirring up the wrath of God? The fourth thing that Nehemiah sees is this. By the way, we're going to do this little uh, remember me for this also, oh my God, verse 22, and show mercy to me according to your great love. It says, moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and I called curses down on them. Now here he is laying hands on people, okay? I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. Boy, Nehemiah, right? You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. And I'll throw in this last verse. One of the sons of Jodiah, Joida, son of Elishim, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat. There's Sambalat, the Horonite. He shows up again, right? And I drove him away from me. There was this kind of intermarriage thing going on. Now, I have a hard time with this passage, and I, I'm not going to apologize for the difficulty of this because it says there they were, the, the trouble was because of the foreign women. That's a pretty crazy teaching. But I want to show you something that I saw. And I'm not, like I said, I want to apologize for that. And if we want to talk about that, I'm not sure how to speak what's going on in the text there. With the people of Israel, they need to be pure and not intermingle. Because that can lead to this kind of idea that we're separate and holy and better than everyone else. And that's not a road we want to go down because Jesus Christ didn't preach it. But look at what it says in verse 24. This is what I have for the fourth problem. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. The fourth thing that he sees is the children of God were not teaching their very own children who and whose they were. The problem with intermarrying was a problem that when the children would learn the culture, when the children would learn what's important in life, they weren't learning as people of Israel. They weren't learning as children of God. I once said this in a, in a study, and uh, it's really st stuck with me. I think one of those things you say it because God wants you to hear it. And it's that what we truly believe, what we really, really, really believe, we teach our children automatically. What we truly believe, we teach our children automatically. And we teach our children not just in words, but by our actions. 
And I think that all of us know this in practicality because it's one of those things that's don't do, don't, what is it? Do as I say, not as I. That's ludicrous. Who asked that of a human being? You know, what if, what if Jesus talked to us that way? What a horrible model. Do as I say, not as I do. We are teaching our children all the time. And my question to you today is what are you teaching your children? What are your children learning from you? And I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip here. I'm really not. I think that one of the greatest indicators we have in our life, a dashboard on our light on that long road trip that's blinking red, is our kids. Because they see what's going on behind closed doors. And when you see this truth come out of your child's mouth, you're cut to the core. It's a warning light because it's not your kids who have the issue. It's you. You're not raising them. You're not teaching them. And I don't mean by what you say that they are children of God, that they are beloved beyond all imagination. I'm always amazed at how we kind of make this cutoff for uh, for. Uh, mercy and grace with people. You know, you, little babies, they're always so cute. We look at them and we go, oh, they're so cute. If you like babies, I like babies. And, but then they get older. And they get awkward. And they start having a mind of their own. And uh, all this stuff happens as a parent. But the things that you see manifesting in their lives, they're learning from you. And so that's the question that I have, is what are you truly teaching your children what are you teaching them by the way you live? Are you teaching them that you're a child of God? Are you teaching them that you have complete freedom in Christ Jesus? Are you teaching them that you can be transparent even to them? Or you got the facade up? You got to make, you know, all of the kids saw how we really were. Well, guess what? They do. The other thing I want to say about this marrying a foreign woman thing is it reminds me of the story of Adam and Eve because it's always the forbidden stuff. And I don't know why God does that to us, you know, because it's always the forbidden stuff, Lord, that we struggle with. Uh, but, uh, but that kind of came out too from that, uh, from that text. 28, uh, 29, remember them. This is Nehemiah saying the fourth time. He said, remember them this time, oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. And so I purified the priests and Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. And I also made provisions for contributions of wood a dozen at a time. So Nehemiah is doing the whole thing over again, as well as the first fruits. He's setting up and, he's, and he says, for the last time, remember me with favor, oh my God. And that's kind of the best thing that we can ask for. A life well lived. We say that, we want to hear that word, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. We meet our Lord and Savior. The last thought from Nehemiah, and this is what I hear the text, is you're never done being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're never done. And I don't know if anyone's ever tricked you into believing that. I don't know if anyone's ever told you, you know, once you know enough, once you read enough, once you study enough, once you pray enough, you'll have it figured out, but it's not true. Not true. But it doesn't mean we're not on the journey with Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't be learning from him. I remember one time this uh, preacher uh, I, I just experienced in my education at Greenville College named Fred Craddock. He, he was ta- tell- telling his congregation about his expectations of going into ministry. And he, and he started talking about back when he made a decision for Jesus Christ. And he thought, this is the decision for Jesus Christ. You know, he was a teenager when he made it. And he says, I just prayed to receive Jesus Christ. And, and I thought, that was it. I was done. And then Jesus was knocking. Red. 
And he said, so he lived his life for a while, and he finally goes, okay, okay, I'll go into ministry. That's the decision. I've made the big decision. I'm going to go into ministry, Lord, for you. I've done it. That's the big one. And Fred Credit goes on to tell a story like this. He says, I always assumed that I could write one big check for God. But instead, God asks for five cents here, ten cents there, quarter, a dime, a nickel. That's discipleship. So if you get wary of the journey, if you're feeling like it's so long, what are we doing? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You might be that kid in the back seat with Jesus Christ. And at first first, uh, glance, it might seem to be unfair to do this. Why can't we write just one big check and say, ah, Jesus is my Savior, we're done. Woo! Right? Because that's good to say. But how else can we truly be transformed into his likeness and image? How else can we truly be healed? How else can we truly be made whole? It makes sense because some of us went through FPU. Talk about the beginning. It wasn't one big decision that paid off all that debt. It was a bunch of little bitty tiny decisions that were a complete pain to make. Some of us have been traveling on the journey of the Team 619, right? Every time we do one of these things, we lose like hundreds of pounds. Woo, that's crazy. It's just one big decision we make. No. <laughs> we make the decision to sign up, but then every week we've got to weigh in. Such a burden. But then all of a sudden we look at that scale and go, wow, it's working. Long term, it's working. Some 500 years after Nehemiah, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament books and he wrote them not to the lost, but to believers. You ever think about that? The books that Paul wrote were back to churches that he had started. There were people who had received the Spirit, had, had been blessed, had received Jesus Christ as their Savior, had been baptized, had been renewed, refreshed, and they were on mission. And he had to write letters back and say, you're screwing it all up. The discipleship carried on. I want to close with this thing from uh, this reading from of epistle of Paul. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this, and this is the flip side of this, because it might sound like I was, re- I was preparing this, I was feeling, oh, nickels and dimes, nickels and dimes. Girl, what a drag. You know, I hate nickels and dimes. 4.16 says this from Paul, writing back to a church. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we do not lose heart, Because although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. What a good word from the word of the Lord. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs all of them. And so we fix our eyes not on what we see, but on what we cannot see. Because what is seen is temporary, but the things that are unseen are for all eternity. And I pray that you receive that blessing today, that you would know we're being renewed day by day. I want to point out a couple of other things on your connection card. We, we put these next steps at the top this week for you to have. Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 96 there is the read this week. If you want to do that, I would encourage you. The psalm is so beautiful. But don't read it when you're in a hurry. Read it when you've got time to read it. The memory verse is very similar from Jesus Christ himself, the book of Luke. And then the last thing I have there is today I will. Because I believe that if you are following Jesus Christ today, there's something that Jesus Christ is asking for. 
He might be asking for access into one little recess of your heart. He might be asking to even unlock the door. Maybe you've never done it. Well, today is the day to do that. But I want to encourage you. This is a personal reflection. This is between you and the living God. You can fill that out, what you're going to do today. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. We're going to do one final song, and then we're going to, we're going to dismiss for the day. But I wonder, how does Jesus experience us in the back seat of the car? Are we the kid that says, I'll go anywhere with you? I'm so happy to be here. You remember when your kids were little and they do that? I don't care, Dad. I'll go. I'll go right now. It kind of comes back later in life, doesn't it? There's a point in the middle where you kind of lose it, and you're the kid in the back going, are we there yet? Oh, are we there yet, Dad? But then when you get a little older, you go, Dad, I'll go anywhere with you. Well, that's my prayer for you today, that you would say that to Jesus Christ. You'll go anywhere with him or with God.